your questions about your sexual health and sexual priorities, needs and preferences are the basis of these podcasts. And because of that, I want to answer some really important questions that have come up over the past few weeks since I started doing this podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Neelima Deshpande, and this is V for Vagina, the podcast that dispels myths and misunderstandings about the vagina and empowers women to embrace their sexual energy, vitality, and well-being. In this podcast, I'm accompanied by Niranjan Medikar, the CEO and founder of Sounds Great, the company that helps me create and market this podcast. Niranjan is an amazing creator, writer, columnist, and an author, and his podcast, Sex Verbold Bindast, which is showed on Storytel, is one of the most listened podcasts in Marathi. He's here today to help me sort through the hundreds of questions I've started to get on social media and as well as in response to the podcasts I've done here before. A lot of these questions are very personal, very intimate, and I needed help to sort them out. Thank you, Niranjan, for helping me to answer these questions. Thank you, Nilima, ma'am. I'm back with some more questions. And the first question is from Roshni. She's asking, Are joint pain, brain fog, anxiety, insomnia likely to be menopause related? Very interesting question. And I'm going to answer it in two ways. The first is yes, all of these symptoms do happen around the age of menopause. And for most women, this will be between the ages of 46 and 52 when periods finally stop. But the area before, the time before menopause actually sets in, can be the time when these symptoms start to show up. So it may be as early as late 30s, 40s, and until the period actually stops. This is the time called premenopause or perimenopause. And these symptoms can persist for well after five to six years after the last period. But the second way I want to answer this question is there are many problems that happen in this age group that are not because of menopause, but they are very similar to causing symptoms like menopause. And the most common symptom is anemia. In women who have heavy periods, frequent periods, bleeding, um, anemia, low hemoglobin level can also manifest as brain fog, tiredness, loss of motivation, desire, wanting to sleep all the time, tiredness, uh, again, anxiety, depression, uh, generalized body aches and pains loss of libido, all of these things can show up in women who are anemic. The second problem can be with thyroid dysfunction. And we know as women start to go through menopause because of the changes in hormones and the changes in blood chemistry, uh, thyroid deficiencies, thyroxine deficiencies or thyroid problems can show up in this age group. Thyroid deficiency can show up as tiredness, exhaustion, swelling around the ankles, which is again very similar to anemia. It can also show up with hair loss, skin changes, um, and uh, mood changes, problems with sleeping, temperature regulation. Women who have hyperthyroidism, which, which is increased thyroid production, can also have symptoms like irregular periods. They can have irritability, mood swings. So there are multiple reasons why these symptoms can happen in this age group. And one shouldn't assume that they're only because of menopause. You need to get tested, checked out by your doctor. More lately, we know that conditions like diabetes and hypertension, even heart disease, 
they can show up in women as atypical symptoms. So just feeling unusually tired, exhausted, not feeling like you've not slept enough, feeling like you can't concentrate on what you're doing, feeling irritable. Remember in previous podcasts, we've talked about how the brain shows up poor nutrition. So if your body aches and you have pains because it's not nourished properly, then your brain will show up similar symptoms. You know, it'll show up as depression, anxiety, negative looping thoughts, irritability and mood swings. So not everything can be blamed on menopause. We need to get back to the basics and check out the whole person, make sure that their lifestyle is restored to normal, that they're eating properly, correctly for them, they're sleeping on time, their circadian rhythm is restored, that they're well hydrated, that they're moving their bodies, they're not sedentary getting enough sunlight exposure, getting enough uh, interpersonal connection, being appreciated by the people around them. All of these things play an important role in how symptoms are manifest. So it's not enough to just blame symptoms on a physiological condition like menopause. That's very insightful, ma'am. Thanks for the elaborate explanation. The next question is from Kaveri. She asks, how to reignite passion in a long-term relationship? That is a really, really important question. And it's a question that plagues a lot of couples, but very few people ask the question because it ceases to be an issue in their lives. Most people who are in long-term relationships have kind of settled into a pattern where they no longer care that much. Now, when does passion or desire or libido come up in a relationship? It's usually triggered by an event. And that event can be as simple as the children leaving home, they're going abroad, they're, you know, beginning their careers or their lives. Maybe um, a son brings a new daughter-in-law back and it kind of triggers a conversation in a long-term relationship. Well, you know, these youngsters are having a great sex life. What happened to us? What happened to us? Or it may be triggered by an event simply like going to um, a wedding celebration or a family celebration where you see other couples, older couples, enjoying an amazing sexual connection or an amazing intimate connection. So this question doesn't arise for everybody. It arises because there's a trigger. So it's important to understand what triggered this question. Why did you suddenly start to find out, well, is my relationship passionate enough? And am I really having the best sexual relationship I could have in this relationship that I'm in? And the second step is to actually identify what is it that we gave up? Why did we stop being passionate? Why did we stop being intimate? Why did we stop doing the things that we used to enjoy when we first got together? And for many people, the answer is, oh, we got caught up in our career, in finances, in children's education. And that is a key indicator of how you shifted your priorities from yourself and your partner and your relationship being a priority to putting everything else first. And for most women, it ends up being kids. So when women put kids before their relationship, that's when the passion in the relationship starts to go. And if you don't have a partner who's willing to talk about these things openly, then it's very likely that you'll postpone enjoyment, intimacy and passion in your relationship to a later time in life. Sometimes it is too late to reignite passion because by then you've got set in your ways or you have too much stuff going on that you've argued and you've established incorrect ways of being with each other, which makes it untenable. And it's very difficult to restore passion in a relationship where there's no conversation or communication. I've talked a lot about intimacy outside the bedroom. 
in couples i see regularly who maintain some physical contact some verbal intimacy some emotional intimacy some intellectual intimacy outside the bedroom it is much easier to connect back in the bedroom and being bring passion sexual passion back into a relationship if as a couple you're willing to be seen with each other you're willing to be open with each other and keep communication channels open then there's always the possibility of re- restoring passion in a sexual relationship however if you've grown apart as individuals it's very difficult to get back your sexual communication without first introducing good communication outside the bedroom so as a couple most people don't realize that they will all, won't always be in the same relationship or with the same person it's important to understand that even if you had a love marriage you're changing as a person pretty much every day and with every kind of event that happens in your life whether it's childbirth or in-laws or friends family changes of home changes in career changes in finances all of these events will shape you as a person and as you change as a person so is your partner health challenges financial challenges all change your beliefs and your the way you see yourself how you relate to your partner also changes now unless you have an open communication system where you talk about these changes and how you're evolving within your relationship you might find that either you or your partner has moved so far ahead or or left so far behind that you can't catch up so how do you keep this connection alive the most important thing is to keep communicating and by communicating it it means keeping the verbal channels open keeping the door open not letting arguments and disagreements um be swept under the carpet or not going to bed with these arguments unresolved there is no argument that threatens your survival unless you let it if each individual takes responsibility for what triggers them for what hurts it brings up from their childhood you take responsibility for healing the hurts and then your relationship is open to thrive because then you're able to communicate without constantly being triggered by the other person's inadequacies or hurts no other person in the relationship can complete you it's your responsibility to complete you it's your responsibility to be your source of happiness when a happy individual comes to the relationship with responsibility for their happiness then the two people together can give 100% of themselves and contribute to the other's happiness it's a choice it's not like being married oh you have to perform because you're in a marriage you're in the intimate relationship and you want to build passion and intimacy because you want to not because you have to I see so many couples in my clinic where one person feels threatened that the other person is going to leave and so they say oh I have to I have to build this passion in me and anything you do against your deepest desires is always going to be sabotaged you'll find a way to not do it so again my reiteration is that each individual in the relationship first understands who they are what their priorities are learns to love themselves make themselves happy make that their relationship priority and then engage in improving intimacy first through verbal communication then through physical intimacy and communication outside the bedroom and then you carry that into the bedroom some tips and tricks Once you know that you've got a great relationship you can communicate your hurts your needs your wants and take responsibility you using the i word you absolutely communicate with confidence there's no fear no fear of violence emotional or physical or otherwise then you are able to engage in sexual intimacy without the threat of anything else how do you improve sexual intimacy and passion well sometimes it simply begins with giving yourself permission to be passionate to be 
open to thinking sexy thoughts, to being open to entertaining sexual intimacy. The second can be building on other passionate encounters. And I talk a lot about this in my orgasm talks or, or the courses I conduct. You identify other areas in your life where you've been passionate. It might be as simple as taking your kids on a roller coaster ride. And you like screaming and shouting and you're really having a great time because you're engaged with your body and you're passionate about what you're you know, spending time with. And that passion can be built on within the bedroom, just remembering how your body felt when you were being passionate. Being excited and amorous is not that different to being love with the moment, being in love with that moment of total bliss, total joy, enjoyment. Simple things that, you know, taking in nature, taking in, you know, feeling awe about maybe an amazing waterfall or a beautiful sunset or a morning or the chirping of birds. Simple things like this can help you to build on intimacy and passion. So passion... For life itself is what brings passion to the bedroom. So unless you're passionate about your life, about what you give to it, it's very difficult to just artificially generate passion in a relationship. It's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I hope it puts it into context. Thank you, ma'am. You highlighted and touched many vital uh, points in this answer. And I'm sure that our listeners, many couples, would get great insights. So the next question is from Anushka. She's asking... I'm six weeks pregnant and I have started bleeding. So what should I do? I'm really sorry. Um, I'm so sorry that you're going through this really difficult time. It can be quite a shock when you find that you started bleeding or you're pregnant. My recommendation would be that you see your obstetrician, your gynecologist and follow their advice to the letter. We know that in women... Um, in human beings, pregnancies are quite wasteful. So up till 12 weeks of gestation, about one in five pregnancies do end in a miscarriage. Um, bleeding is not a good sign. It usually precedes um, problems with that particular pregnancy, with its implantation. There are so many, so many different reasons why you might have bled. Your gynecologist or obstetrician will examine you and assess the state of the pregnancy, the stage of the pregnancy, the location of the pregnancy and any other things that need to be evaluated to advise you correctly. They may or may not recommend some medication which you should take and get guidance on simple things like, well, um, how active should you be? Do you need to take rest? Should you be sexually active? What triggered the bleeding? Um how active are you at work? Have you taken some time off work? Um, do you drive? What kind of food are you eating? Are you suffering with nausea and vomiting? All of these questions that you might have, really important to write down and discuss with your doctor when you go there. Suffice to say, pregnancy, early pregnancy bleeding is not because you did or didn't do anything, unless there's some obvious reason that your doctor finds out. And I want you to really, really take it in your mind that it's not your fault. Uh, no, don't blame yourself for this. Uh, take care, look after yourself, follow your doctor's instructions and let yourself off the hook because we know that early pregnancy bleeding, early pregnancy losses are very common in human reproduction. And sometimes when the pregnancy is you know, at fault, it's nature's way of making sure that an unhealthy baby that can't survive isn't born and very early on nature will take care of a pregnancy that maybe has some chromosomal or other problems and will just get rid of it. Um, at other times, if the pregnancy is very healthy, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't lose that pregnancy. 
So both things apply and in early pregnancy bleeding, there are many things that need to be assessed. So please do see your doctor and get guidance. And um, there is one thing that's really important and it, it's come up only because you've asked this question on a medium like this, is to trust your doctor implicitly. If you have any doubts, it's better to communicate with your doctor and open up and share what your concerns are so that the doctor can help you. If you find that you can't get on with your doctor, you can't ask the questions or you don't feel comfortable, find another one. You live in an area in a country where you can choose your doctor. So it's very important that the obstetrician or gynecologist you choose is someone that you trust implicitly, that you don't question, that you're able to voice your concerns and talk to them openly about your questions and that your questions get answered and that you're not left worrying about what you should be doing next, uh, whether it's your pregnancy or with the relationship with your doctor, what you can and can't ask your doctor. That's very insightful, ma'am. And trusting your doctor implicitly is very important during pregnancy. Yes, here is the last question. It's from Rachana. She asks, my cum smells like egg or fish during intercourse. What could be the reasons and how to treat it? <laughs> the moment I hear something like this, I know kind of what's going on. Now, this is related to an infection, which uh, most, uh, most gynecologists know as bacterial vaginosis. Now, this particular infection, when it is exposed to an alkaline pH, it will release uh, this particular eggy or fishy smell. Now, we know that about 30% of the population of women will have this infection in their genitals. And even if we treat it, um, for a significant number, 50 or 60% of them, the infection comes back. The smell can be irritating and annoying. And unless you're trying for a baby, then it, it's not really much of a problem health-wise. It doesn't really, you know, cause any big, big problems unless you're having, you know, multiple sexual partners or you're having sex without condoms or without using contraception. My suggestion would be if the smell really bothers you, then to use a condom so that the semen, which is alkaline, doesn't come in contact with the, uh, with the infection. You can get treated and see if it clears up the infection then most likely you'll find that it doesn't smell. And I have a suspicion that you probably find the smell comes back when you have a period because blood is also alkaline. So when you have a period, it's very likely that the period blood also stinks in the same way. Your doctor can treat this infection, but beware that sometimes it, it does come back. And the last thing you want is to be taking multiple courses of antibiotics. Now, if you're planning to get pregnant, it can pose a little bit of a problem because it means you're not using condoms. What I would definitely recommend against is douching or washing inside the vagina. That is not going to help. In fact, it'll make the problem a lot worse. So let your doctor help you and treat you with maybe vaginal treatments and that can clear up the infection to some extent. The third circumstance is with if you have multiple sexual partners. We do know that bacterial vaginosis is a carrier for other sexually transmitted infections. So when we examine patients and we find that they've had uh, multiple sexual partners or they've had unprotected sex, not been using condoms regularly, and they have bacterial vaginosis, we're a lot more careful in ruling out other sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, hepatitis B, and syphilis. So if you know that you've had exposure, unprotected sex, uh, or you've forgotten or not used a condom, or you've had more than... Or two partners in the last six months, then I would encourage you to go to a sexual medicine doctor or a GU medicine doctor and get screened for the full range of sexually transmitted infections. And if you do know your partners, uh, encourage them to get screened as well. Thank you so much for your questions. It really informs 
all of the topics I cover in my podcast. Do keep them coming, either on my Instagram handle or via my website. Until next time. Remember to like, subscribe and share this podcast with whoever you think needs to hear it. If you'd like to talk to me one-on-one for a personal consultation, get in touch with me via my website www.drneelima.com and you'll find a button there where you can click and book a slot with me. And I'll be sure to respond to any of your queries. Thank you. Disclaimer. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's or listener's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.